Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello. Adi Eingar. Hello. And we have a special guest. And this is Tobias Pfeiffer. And now I could actually do this German pronunciation correctly. This is so great. I really can do that here. So, uh, Toby, why don't you tell people why you're on the show and why we love you, why everybody should listen to what you have to say. Oh, you love me. I didn't know that yet. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's also, <laughs> it's fun having a German pronounced name because before, you know, we go around a couple of rounds of, you know, how do you pronounce Pfeiffer? And then it's, but yeah. So, hi, my name is Toby. Why am I here? I think I'm mostly here because I'm the creator and let's say main maintainer of uh, Benchy, which is, you know, hopefully everyone's favorite benchmarking library. And if it's not your favorite benchmarking library, then, you know, go tell me and, you know, open an issue or come to the Benchy channel on Elixir Long Slack and tell me what you don't like about Benchy and, you know, what, you know, Benchy can do better because I honestly believe Benny Benchy is one of the, if not the best benchmarking tool out there, you know, across all languages, like not just, you know, Elixir, the Beam, but across everything. I'm, I'm very... Shots fired. <laughs> hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But... What I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. It started as trying to re-implement Benchmark IPS from Ruby. And then I just got so much more done. I basically optimized my whole own benchmarking flow. And so I love it very much. And I wish I could have it in every language. So I think that's one of the main reasons why I'm here. But otherwise, I'm a software engineer, much like, I guess, most of you. Or, you know, the two people that listen to this that are not software engineers or not trying to become one, you know, tell me why you're listening to this. <laughs> I would be very interested. So I'm also a staff engineer at remote.com, which is my first full-time Alex around actually today, day of this recording, is my one-year anniversary there. But so I also know stuff about building things. I know stuff about open source. I've contributed and maintained many sort of like major open source projects, like not major, major, like not Rails or Phoenix major. But I think Benji is kind of big. Then in Ruby, I maintain Simplecov, which is the code coverage library in Ruby, which I've maintained now for uh, many years, which is its own set of very, very different and difficult challenges. Like the other day it broke because of some APM that does something funky and breaks the code coverage. And it's like, okay, how did that happen? And yeah, before I did choose in Ruby, which is like a UI toolkit, and I think generally I also speak at conferences about topics like sort of like social skills or, you know, building an Alexia application, monoliths versus microservices, clean code, a lot of stuff. And to end my 
own self-appraisal. Why am I worthy to be here? <laughs> is, um, I'm somewhat known for having bunnies and posting bunny pictures. Like everybody at Remote will know this, but if you ever contribute to one of my repositories and you do a merge request, I will also put a bunny picture below it. So I'm also quite known for that. You also post a lot of bunny pictures on Twitter. That I do as well, yes. <laughs> Not as often as main content, but yes, I, I do like to do that as well. Yeah, the fun little fact also about Toby is that like when we got in touch and asked him to come on the show, it was basically turned out that he got asked by two other Elixir podcasts already. So like you've kind of been tingling through all of the Elixir podcasts in the past few weeks. Um, so we're going to... I mean, we initially planned also talk about Benji and like oh, with like the latest Benji release 1.1. Then we realized, okay, you already did that on another Elixir podcast. So what are we going to talk about today? Um, so we were thinking that maybe we can talk a bit about it, like in general, like how did you come to Elixir? How did maybe we come to Elixir? I mean, Adi, Alan and me already shared a bit about like our personal story there. But I think um, there's still something to be learned from, from every individual perspective on like how you come to this language, how you come to this ecosystem, how you end up working where you are and what what your perspective on the language and the community as a whole then basically is shaped by this experience and so be before we press record you already said toby that like you kind of have like a, a like a unique entry into like the whole software development sphere like do, doing a lot of open source work already in university so, so why don't you tell a bit about that Sure. I mean, it was a bit of a really in, an interesting way to get into it. So I was already in my master's. And I think, you know, these days, you know, kids probably start doing open source oftentimes when they're in high school or something. So, you know, it's it's nothing uh, compared to them. But I went to a course, which was the Ruby Mendicant University, which was a very hardcore sort of like programming course, like four weeks, you need about 20 hours of being there were checkpoints every week that you need to reach to continue. It was sort of like really advanced Ruby programming. And part of that was also you needed to contribute to one open source project. In that course, there was me, a university student, and everybody else was like senior developer with like multiple years of experience. And like in the end, I was one of the few people that actually passed the course. And I took a liking to the open source project that I started working on, which was uh, Shoes that I teased a bit before, which is hard to Google, but I think Ruby Shoes still shows up quite okay, um, <laughs> which is sort of like a Ruby DSL written by the legendary writer Lucky Stiff. And yes, I know this is not a Ruby podcast where you can write UI applications, like actual, you know, desktop UI applications really, really easily in a very nice uh, DSL that in lots of ways works a lot like HTML. And that was just something at the time that I always wanted to do. So I was like, okay, you know, let's do this. And that was just sort of like the most welcoming, warm community. You know, I would go there and I would be like, hey, you know, folks, you know, my name is Toby. I'm working on this small thing. Like, actually, I think the first project I ever did was basically building a cucumber implementation, sort of like an end-to-end -end testing uh, implementation so that you could run your shoes project in that and, you know, test something. It was terrible, like proof of concept of kind of worked. And everybody was just so supportive. So I was like, wow, I really like these people and I like working with these people. So, you know, let me continue to do that. And so it basically escalated from there. We started a new project, which was called Shoes 4 at the time, which is still not completely done. It's in like pre-1 or something because we stopped working on it. But basically the old shoes was not like you would imagine. It wasn't like Ruby and it had shoes as a library, but no, shoes was its own executable that embedded a Ruby interpreter. And so we were like, ah, that's not great. You know, we got to change it up a bit. And so we did like an extensible architecture. We started re-implementing it. And I just worked with a bunch of senior developers on this, basically, which, you know, from all over the world, uh, which is also what we talked about before. Like uh, there was uh, Eric Watson, 
uh, from, I think, Minnesota. I still have never met him uh, in real life. Jason Clark at the time from Portland. And then ah, I forget his name. There was one fun guy from Japan uh, working on this. And we had a couple in Europe as well. So there was Davor in Sweden and like a couple of other folks. And, you know, when, you know, this whole like remote work started, I realized like, wow, back then I was working remotely and asynchronously with all of these people, you know, for years, basically. It basically also shifted my sleeping schedule a bit towards the American time zones because I could then online, you know, when the Americans <laughs> came online and I could sort of like exchange messages more quickly with them. And so it was this really interesting experience building it with them. I even also like I mentored in Google Summer of Code. I got into Google Summer of Code as a student uh, as well, which financed my first trip to the US. And I got to meet some of these people in real life. So for instance, like Jason Clark, I would consider like a very good friend of mine, you know, I met him, I met his family, I met him for the first time at a beach in Barcelona, you know, at a, when we were going to Full Stake Fest. And that's just a memory that's, you know, that's in my brain that I'll never forget, you know, seeing this person that you worked on an open source project closely with like for almost every day for the past two or three years. And you finally meet them in person, you hug and you talk. It's, um, it's an amazing experience. And it has also really warped, I think, my understanding of open source because this was just the nicest, most welcoming community that would always spend even extra time to get like newcomers onboarded versus, you know, doing it yourself. And that's just the spirit that I carried forth in my open source work and everywhere. And then sometimes I was shocked to realize that, you know, not every every community is as nice as this one, right? So I would be like another community was like, oh, wow, these people are being really mean. And maybe, I mean, maybe you have questions and like I tend to talk a lot, but maybe that's also where we can close the circle a bit because one of the first times where that majorly happened to me where it was like, wow, these people are mean here was actually when I got into Elixir because yeah. <laughs> I think it's a bit of sort of like the, the cultural meshing pot that we are basically with some people from the Ruby community who like, I don't want to throw generalities, but like in Ruby, it never happened to me sort of as much, although it happened. But then, you know, maybe some, let's say people with under backgrounds that may be a bit grumpy. I remember I wrote a, an email to, I'm not sure if it was Erlang uh, mailing list or Alexia mailing list. And I was like, hey, you people, like, how can I turn off the garbage collector. Like, I know you tell me, you will tell me I shouldn't do this, but I want to do this for benchmarking. So this was actually where I wanted to write uh, Benji because, you know, garbage collection can interfere with the time measurements. You get outliers and everything. And that's why, you know, optionally, I want to turn off the garbage collector. Can you please, you know, help me to do this or tell me it's possible I can find it. And some people's reaction was like, really, you shouldn't do this. You're dumb. You know, like this is the wrong thing. This is the worst thing. I was like, no, I put out my reasoning. And that's actually sort of like how some of the Ruby benchmarking works. And so that was really for me. It's like, wait, what? Why, why, why are these people being mean to me? And like somebody actually had to be like, okay, now, now to get back to the actual question, if you want to do this, you, you can't really turn off the garbage collector, but you can start a process with like a big memory heap. So that you have, you know, less chance of running into garbage collection. But that was, I don't know, five or six emails deep in. And I was like, huh, this is different than what I'm used to. Kind of sounds like also what some people, especially new to like the whole field of programming, sometimes share their experience about 
platforms like Stack Overflow, right? Like where, where you kind of get these reactions sometimes. So that's interesting to hear because I mean, from, from where I'm standing, I've always heard that like the Elixir community akin to like the Ruby community because they share a lot of cultural values, let's, let's say that, I guess. Um, that that, that there, there's a lot of warm welcoming in, in, in the Elixir community. But uh, so, so interesting to hear that, that you had like a different first impression. That's Erlang though. <laughs> It's, oh sure! <laughs> this, this, I, I already see that this episode is going to be like the one where we shot, shots are being fired. <laughs> I don't want to say it, but you oh, know, since Adino said it. That, that's also what I was thinking. I'm also not sure. It might have also been the Erlang mailing list. I'm not sure which mailing list I sent it to, but yeah, that was a bit my impression. But I mean, as much as we say, you know, we inherit a lot from Ruby. At least I don't know most Alexa conferences that I go to is like who here programmed Ruby before, and like seventy or eighty percent of the room will raise their arms. It's yeah. Like, quite big. Yes. One thing where I'm still a bit sad that we haven't embraced it as much, sort of like diversity topics, especially gender diversity, is still like so much worse in Elixir than it is uh, sort of like in, in Ruby. Like if you look around in conferences, at least most that I've been to, it's like, you know, non-male attendance is at probably like feels like 5% or something. And I mean, a lot of the speaker panels are a bit better, but like not that much better. Whereas Ruby, you often get to like 30% or something, uh, which is like a whole different vibe and like a whole different feel. Yeah, yeah, agreed. There, there's certainly a lot of room for improvement on, on, on that front. I think that's I mean, true for like all new languages too, like the gender, the lack of gender diversity. I feel like there's like a barrier to entry uh, more for like women or like less encouraged to like try something new and against like very uh, societal. But I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a problem. So for instance, uh, I hope I don't discourage someone totally, but I wouldn't recommend like sort of like a career change or somebody to go into Elixir as their first language, not because the language is, you know, bad or anything, but because you don't have a lot of these support systems out there. I mean, what we have is exorcism, which is, you know, absolutely uh, fucking great. And, you know, they're doing a fantastic job on it. But there's lots of literature, but lots of the literature is aimed at more senior developers that are sort of like changing a stack or something. There's not a lot of sort of beginner material. And then I don't know what your companies look like, but, you know, mostly it's also very hard to find like junior level Elixir positions. And so what I usually tell people is like, I don't really care which language you start with, uh, but make sure it's a popular one. So if like, I usually throw out sort of like JavaScript, Python, Ruby, that kind of thing, so that you can find a job easily, that you find lots of help on Stack Overflow, that you find lots of guides, books, and whatnot that can help you grog it. And then, you know, you can take these skills and you can transfer it to another language. But like really, starting with Elixir is tough. And then it always breaks my heart when I see posts from people that are like, oh, yeah, I was really learning Python or whatever, right? And then, but my friend came along, he said, oh, Python is so that, you know, you should learn Haskell or Elixir or like, you know, some other, you know, program language that is not sort of like, as big and it's just these senior developers sort of like projecting their own value system for languages on like a newcomer and new joiner to the community which is really helpful and then these people will get discouraged because they oh what i'm learning is bad and you know now i'm doing this other thing and that will be much much worse for them than you know the more popular but maybe not not as cool and hip thing to learn yeah yeah agreed 100 there's a lot of gatekeeping going on a lot of people like basically even unconsciously abusing the position of authority to say hey, okay this is what you're doing is bad and i mean in the beginning when you start off there's like no basis where you can say okay this is just bullshit this is just somebody talking out of like from position of, of opinion and not really based in reality um 
Yeah. When we talk about Python, I have a lot of reality because I deal with this crap every day. <laughs> Honestly. I, I, don't, I don't want to get into my stuff. My, uh, whatever language, I'm more than happy. That, and I'm going to give you practical examples. Okay. I'm not just going to be trash talking. Right. Like, that's the thing. Like, I, I know what you're trying to say. Like, people just say, oh, but they put down a language. Right. But honestly, like, uh, like PHP. To me, like if the language creator wants nothing to do with the language anymore, I think that's probably a big, big issue. And it's PHP is one, and Python is kind of similar, but you know he kind of just went to a regular developer, right? So hopefully, we don't have the same thing with with uh, Jose. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I think we should call this episode just shots fired. <laughs> you know, it's always really sort of like easy to take shots and jabs at PHP, but actually they have a really, really great ecosystem. I forget what their MVC framework, the premier one is called, but like they have add-ons for everything. Like, yeah, Laravel. Laravel? Yeah, they have like a great admin interface. Laravel, and they yeah. do so much stuff that, you know, you look at sort of from like the Phoenix or even Rails point of view, and they're like, wow, we don't even have half of that. So what they're doing and what they're building is quite impressive, I would say. And to, to also one thing about PHP, which is nice, every request is a separate process. I mean, it's just more by coincidence than how it, how it's designed because it's like we get the request, it's spawning up this thing, running the script, right? But they already got that, right? <laughs> but, you know, talk about something that, you know, it sounds like something, you know, Erlang Alexia, unless you realize that the word process has like two usages and that always confuses the hell out of people. And then it's even worse with us calling things applications. Like I was talking to, I think a mid-level developer and was like, Toby, what is this? I need to start this application. Where is this application on my computer? What process is it running? And I was like, oh, I am so sorry for you. This old like Erlang terminology, like, please, no, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah. This is the part where I say noob and then just walk away. <laughs> Gosh. No, okay, I really don't say that, but yeah, I, sometimes I want you, to. You, you only think it, right? In my heart. <laughs> uh, I completely lost my train of thought. I wanted to say something about what you said earlier, Toby. Uh, it's going to come back to me in any second. <laughs> Let's see about the, the PHP thing, right? Isn't that usually dependent upon like how you deploy it, right? Because if you're using like Apache, I think they also, they used to use like per, they used to spin up a new thread, I think. And then now I think they have something more async. I was trying to think about what you're talking about with the process-based stuff. You don't know. It's mostly like, I mean, basically, when the request start, it's, it's the ones in a separate process, and like when request ends, the process ends. I'm not sure like how exactly maps it to OS level processes if it's like all the same deal. But like I, I still remember when I did a PHP when I wanted to like spin off like a background worker. That was like that was way before like Docker really got big, right? Like so, so this was really like when you when you deployed PHP files onto like FTP servers, right? So uh, and I was like, okay, now now I see I need to start some kind of daemon which then runs this. What the fuck is this fucker? I have no idea what's going on. Like, <laughs> I just want to run this without, outside of the scope of a request. And then w w what I ended up doing was like, okay, this request is going to just take five minutes. Then. <laughs> that's what I did. But that was also one of my very first backend projects. So, uh, I would say, I mean, like five minutes is, is very extreme. And, you know, most timeouts will hit you. But, you know, the, the work needed to make it run in the background process, update the front end when it's done. And, you know, all of that work, it's a lot of overhead. And like, depending on how often you do that request, like, yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's a file upload that somebody does once a day, it may just be the right decision to just be like, okay, this 
request will take five minutes. Go get a coffee and be back here. It was actually sending push notifications to to users way before like the whole abstraction for push notifications really began. Like Firebase was, I think, it already existed, but it was super small, like not not bought by Google yet, and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, then just you press the press set push notification button, then it's just going to iterate for. <laughs> and sent the push notification. That was what it ended up. It was like a super small app with like only a few thousand people using it. So I was like, okay, it's like, <laughs> it's doable. But yeah, what I wanted to say earlier is that, I mean, as you just said, Toby, like the, the big newcomer thing for Elixir is definitely something you can improve upon. We already talked about that on this podcast. And I think like my personal perspective is also Elixir offers a lot of things which you really can I think only appreciate if you suffered before in some other languages. Like there are certain things which Elixir does differently, which makes um, like as as in Chronos work, etc., more easily. You can really only appreciate if you like kind of came from it from a different perspective and realize, okay, this can be really painful to deal with. So I think this is one of the big reasons why people tend to migrate to Elixir more than just start off with it. That like uh, it's like it's also really marketed in that way. So I, I would definitely go agree one hundred percent when 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 you say like Dix is not really a newcomer friendly language. It's not it's not really aimed towards yet. That yeah, is at the moment like the language. Because I think the language is newcomer friendly, as you know, basically every uh, language is. Although you know, Erlang interop can always be a bit of a sticking point, just like it is with Closure, uh, at least for me. But like the community and the ecosystem just isn't there yet. You know, big enough and or you know the the beginner materials. But I think mm. in many ways it's also like very newcomer friendly. So for instance, you know, like the the compiler warnings and other warnings and tips that we have, it's really really fantastic. I I don't remember what it was exactly because I haven't worked with sort of like Phoenix channels in a while. But there's this one thing where you I think you want to intercept a message or something that tells you, oh, you're using broadcast this and a broadcast this other thing. You know, if you want this to work, you need to use this function. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea what I was doing that it was going to work. But, you know, you just told me uh, that it does. And, you know, that's that's great. But, you know, Sasha, you talked about a thing or you touched about a thing that's also very interesting or something that I think about a lot is uh, because the way that Elixir is marketed is often by, you know, performance, parallelism, scale, you know, those are sort of like the major things that, that we say. And then like, I don't know about your day job. I mean, scale is important and everything, don't get me wrong, but like people are always like, oh, hype, hype, OTP, gen servers and everything. And you often don't write them that often in your daily job. Like, at least I don't, you know, it's often written in libraries or sort of like as one of yep. those side thing where you write, where you have like a specific use case. But it's in like at least a normal, let's say normal-ish web applications, it's not that often and not that important to actually know this. So like, you know, trying to go in and learn all that, it's very interesting and you learn a lot of things and, you know, when you need to use it, it's great. And when you need to debug something weird, it's great. But your, most of your day-to-day, it really isn't. And I think it, it got me to a point where I was like thinking this the whole time. I was like, no, I must just be, it's me. I'm stupid. Like, this is this is wrong. You know, like, I can't do this. And then I wrote a post on Elixir Forum, I think in 2017 or something. So a couple of years after I started, I was like, hey, you, I think the title was, you may not need gen servers. And then I just go around like, why I think you don't need gen servers and also why... I think most applications still need a background job because gen server, you restart the application, the state is gone. You know, it's not a reliable, you know, background job process or anything, you know, and that's a mistake that I see people do. I was really anxious about hitting submit on that post. I was like, ah, you know, people are going to tell me all the ways, you know, in which I'm wrong and that gen server is actually so important and I, I have it all wrong. And then I don't know, I think five minutes after I posted it, 
I see, I saw no reply, but like two likes. And one of the likes uh, was by Jose Valim. It was like, okay, okay, I, I, I got this. This, this is, this, this was probably. And you know, afterwards, uh, the conversation actually, I think, mostly agreed with me. But you know, we also ended up talking about like background job systems and like, you know, Alistair was pretty good. I think Sasek Jurovic was a bit like, you know, I don't, he was like a bit like, you know, I don't know what you do all day, but like, I need gen service in basically all my applications. And he obviously knows gen service and use cases much better than I do. Well, it was an interesting conversation to have. So I'm always very happy about it. Just for the listeners, I'm, we're going to link this thread in the show notes. I, I just Googled it. <laughs> so you can, can read up on it. Yeah, this is, this is something we also had a, a conversation about when we, when we talked about like how people get to Elixir. Like, especially when you stick in the Phoenix ecosystem, like when you stick in this web context, you really don't need to dig into the depths of OTP from the get-go, which is, to be honest, a selling point how I see it. Like you can really be productive pretty quickly with Elixir and Phoenix if you basically walk on this well-trodden path. And I guess like that's like probably was Sasha is a bit has a different perspective on that where like he probably doesn't build Phoenix applications all day. <laughs> so um, at least from far away it seems like it. But yeah, like the, whole, the whole OTP system and like ecosystem framework and the whole gen server topic is something which is like super useful but um, you shouldn't be discouraged if you don't get Grocket from the get-go. I, I, re- I remember when the first time I, I came across a gen server that was like on a meetup and I had like no idea what this thing was. Like I had no idea what was happening. What are these callbacks? What, why is this function being called? Well, what's going on, right? Uh, it really doesn't make a lot of sense in the beginning, especially when you ha- didn't have a contact with met- pattern matching at that point, because <laughs> I was so confused. But yeah, it- it's going to make sense at some point. It's, and there's no harm in yeah, only also one of my rocking it a tad later. Like when I introduce Alexir somewhere, so if like the first time we introduced Alexir was at a company where the Rails monolith, I think it's a pretty classic story. And then we needed something with sort of like more parallelism because we were actually we wanted to track like live track the, the location of our couriers so we were a same day uh, delivery service uh, called livery and so it was like you know i'm like oh no i'm not gonna do web sockets with ruby like please no i i want to have something different so we looked at like a bunch of different technologies so we also looked you know, you know crystal or can we do like an engine x with like just a lua script inside or something and then we ended up with elixir which was i think was around the end of 2015 that we looked at that and that we also sort of decided that that's technology we want to go for. And there was kind of obvious that, you know, we used processes and we had all of that channels and whatnot, and it was cool. But then we started building a second application, which was more like a classic CRUD application where Rails would have also been a good choice, but we just wanted to see, like, how does that work with sort of Elixir and Phoenix? And I remember people coming to me and be like, yo, Toby, you know, we're, we're still using this like Rails, you know, like what, what the hell, you know, we, we should, we should do something differently. We don't use processes or anything. It's like, okay, you know, w- what is your problem? Like, what are we not doing? It's like, oh yeah, we're, we're not running anything in parallel. It's like, well, you see, actually every request once in it runs in its own process. It is parallel by default. We don't need to do anything. It's like, oh, really? It's like, yeah, really. You know, it's just, you know, transparent. You don't see it. You get all of these benefits at no cost, basically, you know, so that we can still write this like Rails, basically, and have all of these benefits. It's huge. And so that's, you know, to your point that, you know, it's a bonus. It's like a huge boon of the ecosystem that we don't need to do that. That, you know, like Acto, I think, does Acto rely on Poolbar? I think so. But like, you know, Acto has its whole like uh, connection handling and like does all of that for you. And, you know, you don't need to do a thing. And it's, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
Agreed 100%. And still, like, if you need it, right, like, if you want to go into that direction, all of this is still at your fingertips. It's that not, like, hidden behind, I don't know, like, some invisible wall you first have to crack through. Yes, you first kind of have to grok the whole principles of OTP to a certain degree, but then again, like, it's it's not, like, a for- forbidden source. Like, I don't know, like, sometimes when I do Ruby, like, how some of these metaprogramming things feel, where, like, really, really feels like some un- godly eldritch magic being casted <laughs> to make some of these things work so yeah especially uh, when 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 you compare it to some of some other approaches about about uh, features like for example how how go doesn't give you generics and at least i think in version two they now do right but but before that generics were like basically hidden for like the compiler land and you couldn't really do that yourselves in this case like elixir really trusts i guess the developer to say okay like yes we, we give you all the power you, we, you can do all of this especially with like macros and the ast and all that kind of thing but you have yourself have to choose when it's applicable and when not and i mean i don't know about you toby but from my experience when, when people like first learn about otp or even first learn about macros there's always this, this, this phase where it's like oh i'm gonna otp all the things oh i'm gonna macro all the things <laughs> Like it's like it's now a hammer, and I want to use it on everything, which even looks remotely like a nail. It's very, very common. Uh, the same but thing. It's part of a learning experience. Meta programming. I mean, like my my own learning curve. There was like, oh, this is evil. Like you know, don't do it. And I felt like I understood it, and I was like, oh yeah, let's do this all the time. It solves all of the problems. And then you know, somewhere you're a peak where you're meta programming everything, and then you run into a lot of problems. Then you know, it goes down again. It's like, oh no, this is terrible. Don't ever do it. And then at some point, it goes up again. It was like you know, maybe sometimes on the right use case to it but yeah like i'm i'm one of those people you know whenever you give me a pull request or something and you implement a gen server or macro or something you know you have to tell me really why do we need this because most of the time we don't you know most of the time you can just do something very well with like pure functions and the pure functional design and like the use cases then you know for macros are very very rare i feel and i feel that there are mostly overused. It's also actually a fun sticking point for um, for Benchy because Benchy is just pure functions. You know, you just uh, put it into a script, you just run pure functions and it's really, I mean, okay, they're not pure in that sense because in the end there's output, but they just uh, run uh, functions and it's fine, you know, it works, it makes it very extensible so that in Benchy you can really exchange every layer because every layer, like the benchmark layer, the operating system carrier, you can just, you know, call it with another interface and you can just call your own other function there and you can, you always have the suite, it's called, basically, in your hand and you can write your own format and do that and that's all easy, you know, easy Elixir programming, whereas, you know, if this was like a MacBook was very like, what the hell? How do we do this? But lots of people, for some reason, really, really want that sort of like like macro X unit ish interface where you write like a, a heavily you know meta program macro file where it's like okay benchmark this thing, give it a string, and then have like the do end body, and then you know have the function in there and everything. And I'm like, no. I mean, I think by now, I think the people from I think Herz und Hörn. Uh, I think is their GitHub, which is now for the non-German listeners, this is another German thing. I think they actually uh, published a Benchy DSL package where they sort of like based on like the pure functions of Benchy, you, they write this DSL. And eventually when I get to it, that's actually something that I want to talk with them about if we can, you know, sort of bring it to the main Benchy org and also me understand it because I understand that people want this. So I would like to sort of like officially support it, but it's not something that I ever want to see sort of like in Benchy core that will always sort of be like, an add-on, an extra thing where, you know, maybe we don't implement some new functionality in it and, you know, you can fix it there yourself if you want to, but it's like, you know, 
if it doesn't need a DSL, you know, it shouldn't have a DSL, but like demand was really high for it. So I'm like, okay, for this one, we'll do one, but it's optional. Yeah. Well, I'm standing, I, I always appreciate that Benji is a low amount of magic, let's say. Like when you like write this Ben, ben script and like just it's, it's a map you give it with like the names and then the functions and that does the thing. Like it, it seems more approachable then. I mean, I, I, I get why people sometimes say, okay, I, I want to write this like in a nicer way of just like from like an, how is it called again, uh, aesthetic perspective. But when you like first start off with it, it's like, okay, this is, like, this is not so bad. It's not some kind of black magic which is happening here. This is just some configuration I'm passing in, some functions I'm passing in, and then it doesn't work. Yeah. It, make, it makes sense, you know? It makes sense. Which then again, I guess you could make probably open up this can of worms and say like, Phoenix does a lot of metaprogramming. Like there's a lot of metaprogramming going on in Phoenix. Is that all of that necessary? Do you even need Phoenix to a certain degree? Because you can also just, air quotes, use plug and basically write, write an API that way. So, but yeah, <laughs> I guess there, there are different, pos different positions which can be taken here and each has its own merit. Where I'm standing right now, I, I like... I think Phoenix hits like a sweet spot, especially in the context of like abstracting away all of the nitty gritty details of handling web requests um, and making it simple to focus on the how, no, on the on the why and not really on the how. That's 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 where I'm standing. But but I get when people say like there's a lot of metaprogramming, a lot so of macros going like on. I've never in really checked. I mean, I know like the router and, and some like stuff that. is like a lot of uh, macros and stuff. But like at the core of it, right? Like something that I really appreciate about Phoenix is, I mean. Again, me coming from Rails. So like in Rails, you know, when you write a the the implementation of the controller functions, like, you know, create and index and whatnot, they just don't get any arguments, you know. Stuff is just there. It's super confusing. It's super wild. And that's one of the things that I really, really appreciate about Phoenix. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I get a connection and parameters as arguments. That is nice. That is good. I can use that. And that is sort of like, that's very easy pure kind of thing you know it's no it's no macro magic and you, you call to context context are no are no weird magic and stuff and then i mean i guess you know if you go down to like the the actual schemas and then like you know schema as as a as a macro i'm pretty sure uh, but you know that's that's a good case for macro right because that is a nice dsl that really shows me so sort of this is what the table looks like this is what i can do this is how i map the fields and everything so i think that's a good use case so i think i think i'm in your boat there i think i like the degree of metaprogramming although i'm apparently not aware of most of it so i would maybe need to revisit that statement once i learn of some of the metaprogramming usages Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I was going to say Phoenix is a lot, a little bit more for me, a lot of metaprogramming. The, 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 the function parameters is just the side effect of Elixir being functional and Ruby being object oriented. That's what feels more referentially transparent. But I think Phoenix, and especially in the router side, does a little too much metaprogramming. 
if you look at the code, it will take you a while to even like figure out what's going on. And I don't even know if it's like maintainable. <laughs> I don't think they've like changed the the router pipeline module uh, in like three or four years. Mm, <laughs> maybe it's just stable, right? I mean, Alexia and Phoenix as a whole, like they're much, much more stable than, you know, I always, always, I always have to go back to Ruby and Reddit because that's what I know best except for Alex and Phoenix. I mean, yeah, or, you know, JavaScript, and, you know, it is very... Or JavaScript, to be still, honest. You know, like, upgrades are no major pain, it just works. And, like, frankly, I think, you know, we said before, it was one of the other uh, things that we do we did want to talk about. One of the reasons I got into Elixir was actually sort of like that I trust Jose a lot. So, like, Jose and the Ruby community with the stuff that he did there, you know, device, was a great called uh, Crafting Rails application. So, like, I felt that sort of, like, he knew what was going on. I like, trusted his judgment on like web application development and development in general. And I also thought that he had seen a lot of the same pain points that I had seen sort of like in Rails and Ruby. So I felt that you know if he is building something that would be very developer-friendly and usable and very practically oriented, also going to it for the same reasons that sort of like I did, you know, I mean, if I remember correctly, it was sort of like researching how you can do uh, sort of like parallel programming, like a language or like how can we do this better in Ruby or in general. And then he found the Beam VM, fell in love with the Beam VM, but didn't quite sort of like like Erlang as a language as much. So he built sort of like his Elixir layer on top of like some core improvements to it. And that was just sort of like fantastic. And that was really a major reason. I was like, okay, this all looks nice. I mean, it still needs some work, but it's cool. And I think at the time, Elixir just hit 1.0 or something around 2015, 2016, if I'm not mistaken, or like even 1.3 or something. It was the point where like the multiple different map implementations went away because I remember there was a, a revision of the Elixir book because before you always had to choose between like four different map implementations Implementation and now I think we all just use HashMap all the time, basically, which is fine. And yeah, I was like, hey, I know he knows what he's doing. He's seen the pain. Like, hey, I believe this will be good. And to one point, this is uh, a blessing because like I trust him and he does good work and he does. On the other side, it's uh, it's a bit of a curious. While we have like other really really great sort of like Alexi Core and Phoenix contributors, we have Chris McCord, we have Mihal Muscala, we have you know really a lot of people. But still, it feels that. Alexia is very sort of like dependent on him. I mean, now with Dashbit, he's also, I mean, he has a lot of people like Boytek and everyone. So there is other people, don't get me wrong, but it's, it still feels like, you know, if Joseph went away, I think we made this joke half an hour ago or something. It would like, it would continue on. It would be good and everything, but I, we would still like really miss him. Like it would, it would be a tough blow. Yeah. I mean, just look at what like, the latest development, at least, say, in Elixir and like really what, what, what's been hyped, so to speak, like Lifebook and like the all action and machine learning topics and all that kind of thing. Jose is involved in pretty much all of that. <laughs> and I think that just showcases your point and underlines it. It would be a huge blow to the community for sure. And um, that's definitely something I, I hope we can see. Not maybe necessarily change, but like when, when the community grows, like that, that, that this burden can be shared more equally across multiple people. And I mean, then the community as a whole would become more stable, so to speak. We, we, we talked about the software being stable, but like the contributor side and like that, that, that like the community lives on and, and, and maintains this level of quality that would be great to see if like more people get involved. So like here, listeners, go ahead. Because with your open source, it's great. Nobody's going to bug you. 
about updating a library. Never. <clears throat> I'm still waiting for Elixir 2.0. I want to see what that's going to be like. I I wish. I think don't don't actually have some ideas about what's going to be in Elixir 2.0. I think there's already some things planned. Obviously, a lot of deprecations are just removing things. Is there even Elixir 2.0 planned? To be honest, my impression was that there are, some, are no concrete plans for Elixir 2.0. There there are some thought experiments. I think like okay, this might be something we might want to do in Elixir 2.0 if that happens someday maybe but as far as i know there's no concrete plans for really doing it yeah i know that they say like this would be done in uh, elixir 2.0 but they like you said they don't really have a a timetable for that but it it would be interesting to see i mean that i i don't know there's some things i think would be really cool to see they have a milestone on github for v2.0 which is empty i know there's definitely some deprecations and things like that they said this will be removed in in elixir 2.0 but yeah, I, I I definitely think there's maybe really no 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 solid plans, right? And I remember like quite a few years ago, Jose was like, okay, first one lecture lecture conference kind of came out and said, okay, the language is is done. Like he he said something like that. That was pretty interesting, and like everybody was kind of shocked. Like what what does that mean? You know, like is the world going to end? That that's what I felt like yeah, from the audience, right? Was like the world was like going to end. You know, that's, that's, that's what everybody was thinking about before. And that's also one of the reasons why I think Jose says that that you know like there's no there's no done he means like there's no major extensions to the language planned and that's also why he says you know there's not going to be a 2.0 i remember some elixir forum post where people were like oh this thing about the syntax is weird he was like hey don't talk to me about the syntax you know i'm not gonna do a 2.0 just to change some syntax around right you know it's like we have it and we'll keep it stable because you know these major version upgrades are always really really tough i mean especially you know Python had to deal a lot, you know, with the Python 2 versus Python 3 switch for like many, many years. And, you know, for Ruby, it was also kind of painful, the the 1.8 to 1.9 switch, although not by far not as painful as for Python. So I think it's actually good that we're the stable. I mean, obviously there's, you know, I mean, there's some small things, maybe syntax-wise or something that I would like to see changed, but it's a great language overall. And I think right now, really a lot of the focus is on the um, the developer experience and to allow us to do more. Like we also have the um, NX, like the, the machine learning and everything. So we're also focusing on the building stuff around and we have a stable base to build from. And so, yeah, I'm personally very happy with it. Yeah, and like a, a lot of the innovation happening in the space is happening in user land, right? That's like what, what we just said earlier, that like Elixir gives you really these tools in your hand to like, to do all the things the core language also does. There's like no hidden source which only the core core can use and you can't. I mean, an X and Axon is like a perfect example of that way. Like I, I forgot how it's exactly called, but there you have this function macro basically where you find functions which then run on the GPU, I think. But it's, it's not my forte, so I might be wrong here. <laughs> but like it's still all like it's still all user land macro things. Like no no special magic here. It's all what everybody else could be using if they wanted to. And like, I mean, if, if you take a look, a peek in like the core library and see how some of the basic building blocks are built, like how, for example, if is implemented, it's just a macro. There's, there's no magic there. And I think that that actually showcases how deliberate the language design is. And I think that's like what, what Jose says then, right? Like there's no major thing going to change about Elixir now. Like all of the basic building blocks are there and now take it and, and, and take it with you and build cool things with it. There, also a while ago, there was a whole discussion on Elixir forum about like maybe extending the pipe operator to like make inline functions and like invoking them more easily. Like where you can basically say, okay, I don't want to pipe my argument into the first place. I want to pipe it into like the second or the third place. There was some discussion happening there and it even got to like a point which Jose was like, hey, maybe we can actually do it this way. And then some other idiosyncrasies popped up and he was like, okay, no, we're not going to do it in Elixir, but 
you're free to do it in user land, right? And there's a library for that now. There's a library which exists to like basically ex changes the pipe operator slightly, so you can now say, okay, I don't want to pipe it in the first argument, I want to pipe it in the second or third or whatever. Um, but then again, you can do it. You can override the pipe operator if you want to. Where you have to import it and all that, yes. Uh, we also but sort of like it's still doable. Like the language doesn't stop you from doing it if you want to. But like other kind of solution because the the then function, you know, you just also get the anonymous function and you can pass the arguments in whatever order uh, you like, which is something that I really like. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's like kind of a compromise. I think what, what it ended up there, like for for the core library language, like okay, we now have this, and you can do this. I have not used it and actually, like you don't yet, need but it I have not been writing. Times. I've not been writing a lot of code lately. <laughs> like if you problem for you the order of the arguments, then like I always contend, like the pipe operator actually helped me think about programming wise what should be the first argument, right? So like it really for that decision. It really helped me because it means that sort of like the main data structure that I need to work on, that I want to work on, like the main collection or whatnot, that needs to be my first argument. And so I apply that in even other programming language because that just as a rule makes a lot of sense to me. And that's how the pipe operator works. And, you know, and if you don't have that, you can always define a small private function and then, you know, change around the order of arguments to call the other thing, which sometimes you need to do with Erlang functions because I think Erlang sometimes is like a different or like a kind of like weird way that you need to, to call it. And it's just great. But like, I also remember just yes, you know, another yes. case or like where there's like a user lens solution that I actually don't use that I remembered there was, you know, in JavaScript for the JavaScript pattern matches, there's this shorthand form where you, when you pattern match on a map, you only provide the keys and the colon. You don't define the variable name again afterwards, but then it still ends up in the variables. And that always seemed like a lot of noise and elixir uh, to me that I always need to write the key and then the same variable. And I was like, ah, oh. Uh, there was always a lot. And there is some library out there that does that, that gives you, I think, a sigil uh, that basically extends to that. But in the end, I've never used it. While it annoys me, it doesn't annoy me enough to, like, you know, add a library and go away from CoAlex. I mean, it's something that I would, it's actually one feature that I would like to see. So if an Alex here 2.0, but I think uh, Jesse has uh, reservations against it, which are probably valid. And so. But yeah, yeah. I guess that's a good example of like why sometimes it's nice to have it in the core language because if it's in user land and it actually changes some semantics around uh, a key feature, and then uh, somebody come getting to the code base has to also grok this, right? Like it's another thing you have to grok, which at the same time is also an argument against putting it in the core because then everybody has to grok it. <laughs> so. That's, I guess, like kind of the, 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 the core issue here. However, I would now lean out of a window and say that's probably also where Jose says, okay, this is like another thing people would have to grok if we added it to the core language. So yeah, I get the frustration because it's like one of my pet peeves also. Like where it's at. it would be so like, this is like the one thing I really like in JavaScript, like where you do this obviously structuring. It's just, it's nice. It's nice. <laughs> but yeah. And I mean, it's it's more it's a small price to pay. Is that I feel for like, I think like for deliberate language design. Looks kind of weird, but like I think it's easy to work with because there's no magic. Going, I mean, it's a little bit of magic going on, but it's very the magic is very limited. I would say, although you know, I think it probably only okay. It might only work with atom keys because with string keys, it's then more difficult to like convert them to a variable or something. So yeah, okay, that makes sense. The, yeah, yes, exactly. I think then, you, know, yeah. you could also have. I think know, that that was like one of yeah, if I remember, yeah, like that was one of the points. I think Jose brought up. So yeah, okay, the, it makes it like now that I think about it more, it makes a lot of sense. But I was just thinking about that. You always gotta look at the cost of introducing something. That's you know sometimes I feel like we 
don't like sometimes programmers when they really like a thing they don't value enough the cost and mental overhead that it introduces to the organization to new programmers and the programmers that always work there one of my uh, favorite examples right now is dialyzer yes it is theoretically cool to have like all of the type specs and whatnot but dialyzer errors the worst ever generally erlang errors sorry but like that there is just so unfriendly to users and it's so hard to block maintain it takes oftentimes also a long time to run it's just so much overhead understanding these errors fixing them that you know it doesn't pro- and personally speaking also like i use dialyzer on like my libraries because i think library is always different than like an application because like other people might be using your types and you know you have also sort of like a higher burden to be right uh, let's say, but like even in these small libraries, it sometimes takes me so long to find and fix these errors, especially in the beginning, but even now still. And then sometimes I try to break the type specs. You know, I, I like, I'll write a type spec where I'm like, this should be wrong. I try to write a code and, it be wrong. and it's not wrong. It doesn't show me the bugs. And I'm like, why, why am I putting up with you? Because you're, you're not doing this. Like right now, I have a thing in Benji where I realized that once the type spec is awfully wrong because I think it takes, it only specifies that's a function with, with zero arguments, but it's actually a function with zero or one argument, depending on the context. Dialyzer runs, it's fine, but like the, the spec is still wrong. And I'm like, you know, it's just not worth it because like, yes, you might find one bug once upon a time and then you will hold it up as the holy grail, but you've spent hundreds of engineering hours, you know, maintaining and running this. And so there are cases where it's worth it and everything, I don't deny that, but as generally speaking, I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, dialyzer is is a is a topic of its own. Like for your nerd talk again, like dialyzer is doing success typing. So as as long as one branch for your program is correct, dialyzer will not complain. And the effect of this, you might have a lot of false negatives, but you basically will never have a false positive. <laughs> That's like the choice was made at the time. So yeah. Um one fun fact about like also I, I have to notice for like Erlang because like yes error messages in Erlang can be really horrible but they've been getting a lot better with OTP25. There's a lot of work happening behind the scenes to like not just say argument error especially with, I've seen that in ETS so many times argument error oh thank, thank you thank you ETS thank yeah, you yeah. <laughs> but now it actually will tell you what the argument error is which is a godsend the output of like numbers and like the rows in the in the Benji output and it's really this kind of like C stringish format where you need to provide sort of like the right number of sort of placeholders and then the right number of arguments in the list and we'll just say argument error it won't tell you it's too many arguments too little the wrong type it just goes argument it's basically like you know fuck you you find out by yourself what's fucking wrong and i'm like no like it's so many hours spent and i was really like you know throw the computer out of the window type of thing you know i'm so happy when i was done with those and like i just don't want to touch them again okay i actually have a question because i mean alan you kind of you kind of brought it up with elixir 2.0 like if we could now if you could make a wish list now what do you all bring into elixir 2.0 what would be the thing you would be wishing for i i have my idea but i'm gonna i'm gonna save it for later so alan why don't you go first because you kind of kind of brought it up i'm thinking maybe it would be nice to kind of get rid of all these really weird terms i don't know like i I just remember uh, when Dave from Pragmatic Programmers kind of came out with this presentation. I think he had a lot of really, really interesting ideas. I would like to see some of those things put into Elixir. I forgot what, what they were up the top of my head, but it was kind of like, let's get rid of some of this boilerplate. Let's get rid of some of these terms. Let's do things kind of differently. Like everybody has that application.ex file, not application.ex, but like the name of your app.ex file. 
with nothing inside. And or what's inside is the default doc that got generated, the module doc, you know, like this kind of stuff. Like, do we really need all this boilerplate? I mean, does can't mix kind of hide some of this and make things easier for us? I don't know. That, that, that's what comes to my mind is things like that. Like, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really comes to my mind, but I think that's a big one. I think I need more time to think, but that, that I think his ideas definitely got me thinking. And I was like, yeah, this just sounds kind of nice. You know, let's, let's kind of like stop crapping on the hard drive and let's actually, you know, only have files that we actually really need. Yeah, there's a lot of merit to some of his ideas. I'm, I think he goes too far on some, some fronts, but... Yeah, uh, I'm not saying that maybe he goes too far, but I think th- there's something there, right? Like, yeah, yeah, do, we, do we really need to keep this idea of application around? I know we need to keep some kind of lingo around, but can we make gen servers simpler in Elixir? Can we do some things a little bit differently? I, mean, I, I feel like everybody's getting looks disgusted right now if you can, if <laughs> can see this, but I'm just thinking like, I don't know. I mean, it would help, you know, the ideas of new people coming to the community. And I understand it may, you may rub some people wrong in the Erlang world, but I mean, new ideas, new languages come out for specific reasons and new patterns also keep emerging, right? There may be something there and I'm interested to see if there could be useful. Right. Like, let's look at like mix dot, like use mix dot config. That's was out for like nearly most of the language. Right. And now they're pushing everybody to use import config. Right. And then this whole entire releases thing, there was a release that EXS file that was the runtime one. We're making some significant changes to how we just do configuration. Like, configuration should just be simple. Why is it not so simple? And do we actually need to go this route? And I like what we're doing right now. And I like that, that the change was very minimal when we went from mix dot config to config. And I like all the stuff that came with it. But I mean, I think we could still do more. And I'm okay with incremental change to make that happen. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know anything specific in my mind, but I think that we can do better. And I think that's what brings people to Elixir too, right? A lot of people come from Erlang that actually go to Elixir also. I don't know. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I can say a lot, but there's, there is some, right? And why do they do that, right? There is like some things that Elixir does right that people really you know, like. We improved the, the whole context Erlang situation hop over you know, check without it out. running it 2.0. And I agree, you know, maybe there's a better sort of like abstraction of yeah. gen servers to be had, but then it could be like just a new a new module. And because we still need gen servers, because we still need to interact with sort of like, we still need to be able to fall back to that base level and we need to be able to interact with Erlang. So that that also stays there. And then, you know, the other stuff that's, that's Mix, right? You know, Mix can upgrade, you know, independent of Elixir. So I think we don't need Elixir 2.0 for any of the things that you just uh, talked about. Right now, Mix cannot, but that'd be a good, place to be in where Mix is more independent of Elixir. Yeah, I mean, it would be kind of cool if you actually could invoke something from Mix. If you could invoke Mix tasks, I mean, maybe that's something that Elix 2.0 can have. And Okay, I'm sorry. How about this? A type system. A serious type Ooh. system. I think that is something that everybody is very welcome to. It would be tricky to do for like, you know, messages, you know, when you got these messages in. But I don't know. Adi's uh, not agreeing with me, but... I mean, it's a different language. Yeah, it's a different language, but I mean... Yeah, but it's called Gleam. Yeah, Gleam does something. I mean, maybe we can look at Gleam for how Gleam does it. They do some interesting stuff. I would like a better type. So, but yeah, it's, I don't know if it's a Luxa 2.0. I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a different I mean, I language. Do, I do like Gleam and, you know, shout, shout out to Louis. Uh, and I still, you know, need to really work with Gleam. But I still think there's, you know, because it's different approaches, right? Because like Gleam is like sort of like, let's say, type first design that was one of the reasons why sort of like louis designed it so it's more like in like let's say haskell spirit whereas for elixir i think we would always be with like more of an optional uh typing uh, system, yes, but yes. Just, you know one that's better than what we have uh with dialyze and everything and i think that can bring um a lot of value i mean like lots of people have gone 
that route. I mean, lots of ecosystems have it. It's also, you know, funny, you know, how the wind changes. You know, at first it was all, you know, let's say not super well typed. And then we got all the dynamic languages, you know, JavaScript, PHP, Python, Ruby. And then, you know, all of these also now have some type system built into them or like, you know, as a separate, you know, very popular add-on like TypeScript. And I'm like, PHP, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there's some kind of typing thing for PHP as well, uh, right? So we're going sort of like the other direction or more joint direction again. So I would actually really, really like to see it. Yeah, I can plus one that. Like if we would be capable of having like an opt-in type system for some parts parts of our code and all of it, that would be nice. Maybe maybe the whole interop story with Gleam and Bix will get a whole lot better and then you can just say, I'm going to write my, my core application logic in Gleam and all the like nitty gritty outside ugly world stuff in Elixir. Who knows? Okay, but if I had a wish for Elixir 2.0, and this is like kind of like a small but also big thing, is keywords versus maps. Oh my god! By default, like the syntactic sugar for functions gives you a keyword list, and most of the time you don't want a keyword list. To be honest, <laughs> most of the time you want a map. And if it, this is a breaking change, so it kind of would have to be arguably a 2.0 version, but that, that would be one like, thing I, I would like to see in a 2.0 version. But I also don't think it can like, happen. Change like, default from like so keywords to maps. Of a change, because, you know, every existing Alexia program treats it, uh, treats it as like a keyword list, you know, unless, you know, we all start using the access module for most of this, it would, you know, it would destroy everything. So don't think it will happen. Although, but yeah, I mean, a fun thing, there is another Elixir yeah, yeah. where it basically asked... Break and change, like I said, but a good gosh. It was like one of the first versions of Bench. I think the first version actually took the options as as a map or something. And so I was like, hey, you know, and then people told me, you know, that's not how we do it in Elixir. I was like, hey, people, but why no? Because like options, I don't want to have multiple keys in my options. There should be one key. Like this is like, I don't want to deal with any of this. And why is it like this? And we're like, you know, this is how we do it. All and it's like, I think one of the main reasons why it does, or like the main reason is so that we can have DSL stuff like, you know, an Ecto where we can have, you know, uh, multiple keys and it makes sense. And you know, that's fine. But it, I think it's not a great choice for default. And then I haven't checked it out, but I think one or two months ago, somebody found that thread again and commented on it and said that actually an Erlang OTP with 25 or something, they changed the default or the new recommended default for options from keywordless to maps. So that is also sort of like an interesting thing. Like I have looked it up. I just saw the email with the thing. And so like I, I need to look it up again if it's if it's for real. But that would be a very interesting what? thing. Because then, you know, we have like Elixir with like the keyword list and all of a sudden like the new recommendation for Erlang is maps. And then it's, it's That's huge. Kind of weird. But yeah, it, it would be great. One of the many sort of like small pitfalls or annoyances. Yeah, especially because when you, for people who like start with it and then they like grok pattern matching, they're like, oh, pattern matching is so great. Now I'm going to pattern match on this keyword list. That's like a that's like a common pitfall, you know, like where you actually, I mean, for everybody who might not know it, I guess most listeners know it, but when you pattern match on the keyword list, you can do that. But then the order matters. Like you have to give the arguments in exactly the like, order you pattern match on it. That's like I was doing the same. You know, you can't. Yeah, let's just say a lot of people get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> your standard library i think like some opt parser or something and then you know it always just pattern matches on the first argument as a recursive function it always pattern matches on the first argument that then you know goes to the tail but it's just so much harder and so much more code than just you know matching on the map that, that works yeah map also has its own very fun sort of like pit hole that you can fall into that i actually fell into the other day again which i'm not too ashamed to admit <laughs> because uh, 
pattern match against like an empty map just makes sure it's a map. It doesn't make sure it's an empty map. <laughs> that, that can be really, really bad. Yes, yes. There was one, 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 one of the ones I saw in like 2018, a new engineer did the pattern matching on keyword. The general clause would uh, sort the keyword by keys and recall the recursive one. <laughs> <laughs> you, to be honest, what I always do nowadays, and it's boilerplate, like it's boilerplate I have to write, is I have like one clause which checks, is this a list? Then it transforms it into a map and then I just use a map. How I eventually That's how I do it always. Because uh, there is a it's just, it's annoying. I don't want to be dealing with a keyword list uh, my pattern matching. The only purpose is to take a nested keyword list and convert it all to maps. And like if it has maps in it, also, you know, keep it intact and everything. And then so Benchin generally only ever has to deal with maps. So there's like, just like in a web application, there's the ugly outside world layer where there's keyword lists coming in. And then, you know, you transform it into nice maps with which you then work internally. And then, you know, everybody lived happy ever after. I have a 2.0 feature. I think Elixir is not very introspectable, um, especially compared to Ruby. Like one of the things, you know, like you, you don't know when a function is called without doing some weird stuff like maybe the setting setting up a trace or yeah do something weird <laughs> i actually finally i have a module that i wrote called introspectable kernel i import that in test.exs config so whenever i run test kernel is replaced by introspectable kernel or and def module calls the kernel's def module but does something else so i can like report on on all those things but that doesn't work it, i feel like elixir has ways to go in like introspectability i think one of the things like toby mentioned about like ecto and i think jose something he does really well is like reflections right like in any dsl that he writes with meta programming they generally have like reflections even device uh ecto and not phoenix right because Chosen out right that. So I think uh, I'm just surprised Elixir is not very reflective. But would that have to be a 2.0 thing? I mean, that could also be a 1. I don't know, 20 thing, right? D- depends on how you do it. If you do it the, the hacky way that I did it, maybe you can. <laughs> but if you want to change the way, what is it called? The man, I forget how Elixir stores modules and functions, but uh, the agents where all of those are stored and how long they live, how long they're alive. If you want to change that, that seems like a big upgrade to me. It would break. Well, it could actually it could be a non-breaking change if it, it fits done in a way. That's what I'm getting at. Like the interface doesn't I mean, change. Yeah. Yeah. Two, I mean, major version change is always about breaking. It's with keywords and maps. Like it's, it's breaking. It's horribly breaking, but gosh, would it be nice? For instance, as opposed to Ruby, always have a do and an end. You know, if def module, do end, you have, you know, def and you have case and all of them do do end. And so it do always goes with an end except for anonymous functions, you know, fn, and then you have an arrow. And I know it's like sort of like the functional notation, but I'm like, you know, why Why is there this one exception? You know, I like consistency. Why can't this just be do end? You know, by now it would look very weird to me if it would be do end, but like I really struggled with that in the beginning. I was like, you know, I just wanted to be consistent and all be do end. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Never thought about it that way, but yeah, it it, it is weird. Like it's like, it's kind of like a, like one clause of a case, kind of-ish, you know? Huh. I mean, and, and you can, I think that's kind of the, uh, the point against it, would be you, you can do multiple clauses in an anonymous function, you can do Right, that. yeah, I think I think the fn mm-hmm. is the do in that case, right? Like, so you probably want, you're probably asking for fn space do, and then the clauses. Because 
adding it before the clause doesn't make sense because it uses the same syntax as like case statements like Sasha mentioned. Hmm. Yeah, the do comes after. I mean, it would be fn and then it could just be the clause and then do like, you know, like it is. I know, could be. I rarely, rarely use, you know, anonymous function with multiplication. I know it's a thing, but I would have trouble. I sometimes use it for like a reduce sometimes where like you might want to do something very differently in the beginning. Every time I have different cases, I just write like a private function. Like I'm, I'm one of these people, you know, like if, if my function mm-hmm. gets longer than sort of like eight lines, I'm like, ah, or like, you know, like having multiple lines in, in the pipe that my pipe is not like, ah, I, yeah. no. I, I guess you could make an argument for, do we really need multiple clauses in an anonymous function? You could make no, that I, argument, I, I, I guess. I think we do need it because like, I think they need to be, and you think they need to have sort of like function parity with like normal functions definitions. Uh, so yeah. so I, I think we do need it. I'm just saying that I very rarely use it. And so like, if you would be like, Toby, if you can write me like a function with like three clauses right now, you get a hundred dollar. I don't, I'm not confident I would get a hundred dollars, you know, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think it makes sense before the clause FN space do. It's very similar to case statement in that case, right? It would kind of read weird. <laughs> I guess that's why they didn't do it. <laughs> why they didn't do it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, people, so we are over the one hour mark, so I'd suggest to maybe slowly <laughs> edge towards the end of this and transition to picks. Is there any any last wishes you have for Elixir 2.0? Any last words? Yeah, let's get rid of structs and let's put back in records. I like structs, go away. <laughs> okay, fine. Let's let's make method missing a thing again. Method missing exactly. is a thing. Yeah, we should be using that all the time. So no. we can make our own DSLs. I actually I kind of wish that Elixir you could do a nice DSL because people are trying to use it as a scripting language. So it really does need to some DSL love. I, think. I mean, you, you could, it just read, if you if you read the metaprogramming Elixir book from from Chris McCord, uh, he basically suggests okay, you can do DSLs. It's like no problem, but you would basically map like enclose them in a macro, like inside of that macro. Then like that macro takes care of a DSL and. I'm a big proponent of that. I think it makes a lot of sense. We have one feature, recursive runtime macros. Macros can be recursive right now. And if you're writing, like a, uh, like Al mentioned, if you're writing a complex DSL, that's always a problem. I, I have not enough information on my hand to have an opinion on this. <laughs> I'm not sure if people should be allowed to write code that writes more code infinitely. Like, I'm, 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 I'm not sure that's something I want people to be able to, which is, you know, one of the things that I, I like about, I don't know, functional programming in the sense that it limits your choices. It limits what you can do, right? You know, you just can't go somewhere and like mutate some state or, you know, you just can't do all of these things. And, you know, that seems like, oh, it's a limitation. You know, we can't program well like this, but actually it helps us understand and follow uh, the flow of the program better and helps us program better that limitation. So in in a sense, Mm. the limitation is actually liberating. And so like maybe like I would need to look at the DSL cases because like in Ruby, I'm pretty masterful, I would say, with DSLs, like not so much in Elixir, uh, I have to say. So I would need to see if I really need that. But like, it sounds way too dangerous to me. There is, by the way, a fun fact on that. In Ecto, the schema DSL, you can make it recursive. It's by accident. So inside a field, you can call another macro because it evaluates the field in a different context. Anyway, just a hack. I'm sorry. Let's stop. I I want to go into structs like really quick because that's another, let's say, because before when we talked about Elixir.O, like structs are also a common pitfall in that structs are maps, which, you know, it's also like I wrote a deep merge library that I also use for uh, Benchy, actually for... uh, 
the merging of the default configuration with the user provided configuration after I converted it to a map, obviously. And, you know, there I actually had a bug in there because like I wasn't treating, you know, structs especially. And that is just sort of like a weird piece of knowledge that you run into once you, you know, first had this encounter that there's this like underscore, underscore, struct, underscore, underscore key that tells me which struct it is and everything. And that's just, I mean, I know why it is like this and I know, you know, compatibility and everything. It's like all of these, like a lot, I think a lot of these things we talked about, we find out the reason for them, but it's just, you know, when you learn and get into the language, they're just ever so slightly annoying and you always have to have them basically on the back of your head that this is like this sort of weird way for some reason, which would be stuff that, you know, would be good to get rid into off in 2.0, but I'm not sure, you know, how, uh, you know, that that essentially should be possible, but I do love structs. Yeah, I guess the mapness of struct is something you could reasonably rethink in 2.0. I think that, that I mean, it would be a breaking change, but that it, it's, it's worth having a discussion about, I guess. But the, the way in general, how structs are working in Elixir, like a, a part of that weird edge case like i like structs a lot (laughs) i do it's just um the other the other thing they're like there's this oh i forget what it's called i think it's called type struct or something there's some library that sort of gets some of the usual boilerplate of sort of like default values defining the structs and then also you know i think doing a type annotation for them which usually you have these three clauses (laughs) that all look kind of the same and it just generates them all for you like that is a very you know cool nicety to have yeah yeah agreed I'm actually I'm currently writing a small little library I'm calling um, I don't really have a name right now but I'm probably will calling will be calling it X Union which is doing some type it's just like create basically helping you write some some types and what it but does under the hood it's like it creates a type which is then just an or of a bunch of structs which are then the different clauses for the some type so that that map, map, map would be also like kind of cool to see like in Elixir 2.0 it doesn't even have to be 2.0 it could be 2.1.1 something with like a bit more support for some types or union types or whatever you might want to call it because that's that's not really well supported by Elixir right now and it, it is sometimes very useful to 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 model things like that. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Okay, I'm going to cut off the conversation here, and I'm going to transition us to picks. And Alan, why don't you start us off with picks, gosh? Okay, yeah, recently I've been trying to get more and more things done because I really have too much stuff to get done these days. And I just decided to pick up, so I think Pragpog released a like $5 discount for this Pomodoro Technique book. I picked it up, I started reading it. Actually, it's pretty decent, right? Sometimes some of these things are pretty kind of clear, like, hey, you know, do this, do that, kind of time box yourself and stuff. There's a lot of that, but there's also just a lot of stuff like, okay, do 25 minutes, why 25 minutes? And they kind of talk about why you should do that and why you should kind of do small breaks in between. So if you're kind of like me, where you just have endless stuff to do, this could be a way for you to get things done. And so for me, I'm starting to put it to practice and it's been quite useful. You know, we're basically, I didn't start doing 25 minutes and all that stuff. Basically, I worked my ass off and then I take a break for five minutes and then I do that again and again. So find your own kind of method. But I think this is a pretty good book. So uh, this is my pick for the week. Nice. And Adi, what is your pick for this week or picks? Yeah, we talked about Elixir not being super friendly for entry-level people. So I have a few along those lines. Sorry, the mute. (laughs) Yeah, one sec. Let me look at my tabs. 
Yeah, so I might have picked this a while ago. It's called The Joy of Elixir or Joy of Elixir. It's a, it's a book. It's like specifically geared towards entry-level folks. And another thing we used at my company was uh, Learn With Me Elixir. It's yeah, bas- basically like a series of posts uh, you can follow along if you're an entry-level uh, Elixir person. So yeah, those are my picks for today. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I have only one pick, I think, this week. I think only one pick. And it's a video my game, pick, right? Huh? It's a video game, right? You're always. No, it's not a video game. Games. Uh, it's not a video game this time around. I've, I've, Rust book. No, <laughs> this, this is your forte, Alan. Rust books are your forte. <laughs> I can pick. I can pick a Rust book if you want. I, mean, I think I picked it before, but I, I kind of dropped it. Okay. Long story short, <laughs> I started reading a Team Topologies. Team Topologies is a book written by Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pace. I hope I pronounced that correctly, to be honest. Um, and it came highly recommended to me from a lot of the people in the domain of design space. And like the main premise is, I think we all have heard of Conway's law before, right? Conway's law, which dictates that or proclaims that organizations are doomed to create designs which are reproductions of a communication structure. And there's this thing called the reverse Conway maneuver, which is basically where you structure your organization in such a way that it reflects how you want to uh, your software to uh, designs to look like. And what Team Topology is about is basically like a collection of typical patterns of like how teams can collaborate and like how how they might how you might want to then model your organization and how to model your t- teams to create optimal flow for like business delivery but uh for software delivery but also business value at the end of the day and i've not i've not it very far into it but it's already like it, it, it kind of really goes touches on this whole topic of like social technical systems where like software de- software development is not just tech but it's also social and people and i'm i'm really really interested in that um, topic lately and i think team topology is definitely one of these books which is worth checking out to like kind of maybe get a new perspective on software development as a whole and like how this whole social and organizational design really impacts how the software looks like we build so yeah definitely an interesting read that's that's my pick for the week and to to mention the rust book i just just to mention it, if people are interesting, uh, there's a cool Rust book of, uh, called Hands on Rust, where you basically build a 2D game in Rust, and you also learn some things about game development. I've never finished it, but that's on me, not because the book is boring. I'm, I'm bad at finishing books. <laughs> so it's uh, not really a pick, but just to mention it, if not people are curious. Um, Toby, do you have any picks for us? Just pick one pick, so I get lots of extra picks. I heard. So <laughs> it works like that. There's a mechanism. It works like it. Yes. You can't go over it. So Hands on Rust is actually a book that I wanted to read, but still haven't read. However, I have something that uh, connects to it, which is the Godot game engine, which is a fully uh, free and open source uh, game engine. So if you want to look into that, it's uh, quite cool. They have their own little programming language called GDScript, but you can also use others. And it's quite friendly and cool. And they have, or well, not they have, there's a website called uh, gdquest.org which uh, hosts some free tutorials, but also some sort of like paid tutorials. And I, they're working on like a new major release to like help people get into programming via game programming. But that's also, you know, a nice intro if you haven't done sort of game programming with Godot before. And like I, I kickstarted their thing and now I gave them a bit more money. So now I have access to all of their courses. 
And so that's like a fun pastime for me to sort of like try to get into that and see that, but also like 2D programming because it's it's just interesting like how they do things and it's really well presented and well done. And I think open source stuff is always really nice to support. You know, one of the things I like about Elixir is that you know, I can just look at the source code and I'm like, how do they do this? Or how is this done? And I can go there and I can look because it's written, it's open source and it's written in Elixir, so it's a language I understand. So that's kind of cool. So I want to shout that out at that point. And then let's talk about health. I I mean, the listeners won't see this, but I have these wonderful braces on my hands and I've been uh, battling with sort of like hand pain for more than a year by now, partly due to stress, partly due to, you know, some um, some movements that I shouldn't have done uh, basically more than a year ago or something. And so watch out for your health. And so, you know, like some people ask, you know, when do I, oh, I will only sort of like get like a split keyboard or a good monitor placement, you know, when, when something hurts and, you know, that's that's when it's too late. So I just want to open up some awareness that, you know, do check your setup, especially with working from home, as I think many of us are still, that you got like a good chair that you maybe like look into a split keyboard or like hand position. So for instance, I also transitioned to uh, vertical mouses or vertical mice because that's, you know, the way we usually hold the mouse or even the keyboard is not natural because natural is more like the handshake position. Everything else is twisted and, you know, everything should be sort of like rectangular and, like I can't do the whole course on it here and I might, you know, write a blog post on it, but it's very important. And also, you know, as a side story, as I think people may have seen on Twitter, um, Jose is also currently dealing with this hand pain and I was talking to him and he basically arrived at a lot of the same sort of like conclusions and things that he bought that I bought. So like, you know, the Kinesis Freestyle 2 and like a vertical mouse and like all that kind of stuff. And he also was wearing some kind of like braces to support his arms or like I think tape. And so I think it's just something that, you know, for people to be aware of, you know, like do it before it's basically too late kind of thing. There's also a good book called, I mean, it doesn't go into this specifically, but there's a very interesting cool book called uh, The Healthy Programmer by, oh no, I know him personally, uh, Joe Kuttner, I believe, from Prague It's also very interesting to like read through some of the stuff that he wrote. So, okay, that's health. Then I am. For, for Adi's pick, um, I just also want to shout out Exorcism. I think everybody's aware of the uh, Exorcism Alexi track, and then it's awesome, but it's really, really awesome. We actually use it for our sort of like Alexi onboarding for non Alexi developers, and it's really, really wonderful the way that you learn there through like exercise and everything. And then shout out for a conference, what I'm going to speak at, uh, which is Codebeam uh, Coruña, which is like in uh, Catalonia. And um, no, not Catalonia. Oh God, Pablo, I'm so sorry. It's in Galicia. It is not in Catalonia. It is in Galicia in Spain. I do know this. And it's, I think, on the 11th of June, which makes it kind of tough because uh, I think the uh, Alexicon of EU, um, after they moved it, is like the 9th and the 10th of June. So, but you know, I'll be there. I'll give a talk. You know, there's other cool people like uh, Quinn is there and like other cool people giving talks. So and it's a nice, you know, coastal city in Southern Europe. Uh, so it's very nice to go to. And then I have other fun stuff. I heard books and I'm talking about fantasy books. Like a couple of years ago, I basically rediscovered a lot of my love for reading through uh, Brendan Sanderson, who is like a brilliant author, has this like entire universe called The Cosmic that he works on. He writes like really, really good books with really sort of like good plot twists. It's like more of fantasy and that kind of stuff, but it's really well worth a read. I would recommend starting with Mistborn, our one, uh, The Final Empire, because the book stands by itself. So if you read it and you don't like it, you don't miss anything. It's nothing where you say like, oh, I need to read the next book to have something. You can just read the book and be done with it. And if you like it, 
you can read the whole trilogy because actually there is something that comes after, but you don't expect it in the beginning. And then there's a whole lot of more books that he does. And he deals with like a lot of topics like, you know, mental disabilities and everything. And really, really amazing, really fun. And he also made this gigantic Kickstarter that like doubled the amount of the most successful Kickstarter, basically, where he basically, during COVID times, he wrote four secret novels because he didn't need to go to conferences and stuff. He had so much extra time. He just wrote four extra books in two years or something. Like, the man is a machine. He publishes, like, one major book every year, and then he just writes these on the side. It's, he's a machine. And similarly, because I heard games, I mean, it's, like, it's still hard for me with my hand to paint to play games uh, a bit, sadly. But like I was playing this game a bit older, but not that old game uh, called For Honor with like two of my best friends. But the other day, it's basically sort of like a melee fighting game where you also need to like capture like points and get points in like Dominion, but you can also just play a full duel and you can be like, you can play as like sort of like a Viking, you can play more as a samurai or you can play more as a sort of like a normal uh, European knight kind of character. Have lots of different characters with different movesets and then it's kind of like a bit like let's say, Dark Soul-ish combat, like more mythological combat and everything. It was really fun. I mean, we only played against bots, and I think the first time we'll play against humans, we'll just gonna get, you know, destroyed. But it was a lot of fun, you know, playing the game of the two of them. So maybe also take it as a recommendation to maybe, you know, take some co-op game or co-op PvP game and, you know, play with some of your friends. I think that's it. Nice, I think. I can't remember the last time we had so many picks. I love it. Actually, now that you mentioned one game, like with friends, there's one I also had a lot of fun with lately, which just popped into my mind, and it's called First Class Trouble. And it's it's technically still an early access, but it's basically like a, a 3D extended version of Among Us. So like where, where you are, the premise is the following, like you are residents on a space station, which has like a rogue gone AI trying to kill everybody. And it's always with six people in a lobby and you have to get through multiple levels to shut off the AI core uh, by, by collecting key cards. And there's a lot of like uh, environmental hazards like fire or electricity arts, arcs and like low oxygen, all that kind of stuff where you can die easily. And like of these six players, two people are personoids like robots which look like humans and they have of course the mission to sabotage you and i mean i've been only mostly playing it with, with, with friends and like people i know well but it has been a blast like, with, like if you have a group of people or, or friends you can play these games together it's very very funny because like the game is not really taking itself super seriously so like for example you can, you can push people and just they just wreck doll all over the place. It looks hilarious, and it, it's just fun. It's a fun, fun little game to play with friends, and, and created a lot of laughter. So, I, I can, if, if you're like into that kind of gameplay, I can really recommend it. It brought a lot of a lot of joy <laughs> in my life lately. Okay, then thank you for being here, Toby. It was a pleasure talking to you. We kind of went all over Thanks the place, but eh, <laughs> it was fun. The audience has as well. I'm sure. I'm sure they're used to our rambling by this point. I think. <laughs> And yeah, okay. Then have a great day and have a great week, folks. And tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.